Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I'd like to talk tonight about how we create our reality and the possibilities, the choices that we have in this creation. Might be familiar with the first line of the Dhammapada, the sayings, famous sayings of the Buddha. It says, Mind is the forerunner of all things. In that first statement, the Buddha is pointing to the fact that every moment there is continual creation that comes out of mind, whether we call it universal mind, infinite consciousness, or our limited relative reality, our own small mind creating our world. It's important to realize this. The implications for practice are great. There's a paradox, um, as there often is, between the letting it be, the receptive element, or the making it happen, the active element, as you're sitting down for the meditation. This issue of doing or being that I spoke about earlier in the retreat. Do you make yourself concentrated? Do you make yourself mindful? Do you just do your part and let it happen? <clears throat> now, I'm not going to come up with the final answer on the question of free will or determinism. Uh, one could argue that around and around, and I've asked numerous teachers what they thought and nobody's come up with a definitive answer that I that I can say yes that's the right one but from different perspectives perhaps they both can be held as true that perhaps in an absolute reality there's a lawful unfolding where there's nobody home there's nobody making any decisions there's nobody um, making anything happen. But from a relative reality, it sure feels as if somebody's doing something here. And when I talk about this idea of, of creating a reality, I don't want to put it out in a sense that we have to blame ourselves for our present situation. This could be used as a good way to beat yourself up. Oh, I must have been terrible in a former lifetime to get all these headaches or my body hurting or this situation that I find myself in. Uh, don't use this talk as a weapon. That doesn't help at all. In fact, we have what we need. I don't know how it works out this way, but we have what we need in every moment to wake up. 
So rather than backtracking and holding ourselves accountable, how can we use this moment to meet it skillfully so that we have the possibilities of creating more understanding and wisdom and love in our life? Something that amazes me and inspires me that Jack talked about the other night when he was talking about the positive side of impermanence is the continually creative process of life. It's amazing how this fact of an impermanence of a Nietzsche keeps on presenting new forms, new moments that we reproduce ourselves the diversity of life even within a a drop of pond water and that out of death new life comes you know a tree falls and then there's moss and spores that grow out and it's just continually wanting to create itself that each moment is new there's a couple of words from a, a beautiful book The Universe is a Green Dragon that, uh, that speak to this creativity <clears throat> that really move me that I want to share <clears throat> the universe would never bother to create two Shakespeare's that would only reveal limited creativity the ultimate mystery from which all beings emerge prefers ultimate extravagance Each being glistens with freshness, ontologically unique, never to be repeated. Each being is required. None can be eliminated or ignored, for not one is redundant. The ground of being is generosity. The ultimate source of all that is, the support and well of being, is ultimate generosity. All being comes forth and shines, glimmers and glistens, because the root reality of the universe is generosity of being. That's why the ground of being is empty. Everything has been given over to the universe. All existence has been poured forth. All being has gushed forth, because ultimate generosity retains no thing. So out of this emptiness springs forth infinite creation, creativity. (coughs) And we're part of that process. Our body is continually regenerating, healing itself, creating new cells. And our mind, if you haven't noticed, is pretty creative even when it seems that it's boring and just playing a whole tape over again and again, isn't it amazing how we are given this mechanism that's constantly active and coming up with images and thoughts? So this creativity, it's simply happening through us. Don't even have to ask who's creating. Just creativity is and we're the instrument through which it's happening. It's one way to to look at it.
And this profusion of thoughts has so many different possibilities. We tap into some divine inspiration and boom, out comes a novel or a work of art or something quite moving that touches others. I once saw Woody Allen on uh, 60 Minutes many years ago and uh, the interviewer asked, how come he's so funny? And he said, you know, I don't know, but ever since I was a little kid, I just had this amazing knack. I'd open up my mouth and out would come this funny stuff. And I don't know how it happened, but I just don't get in the way and it keeps on coming. It's really beautiful. When we don't get in the way, we can tap into tremendous wellspring of creativity. So if we're constantly creating, or creativity is constantly happening through us, question to ask is, how is it that we create suffering? And how is it the possibility that we create, can create happiness for ourselves? I know it's possible to change in that that creation of more suffering to more happiness. <coughs> I, I've seen it in myself. Actually, there was a, a great turning point in my life in, in my early 20s. I was a very cynical, pessimistic teenager. Uh, I didn't really like myself a whole lot. And I thought that things just would generally not work out when it came to me. And it was a very painful way of going through the world because I just expected the worst to happen. And sure enough, it seemed to. And one very um, powerful experience that I had changed from being a, a pessimist to an optimist. Sports helps a lot. It just kind of gives me this sense that you never know until the final minute, the final out, but when I started to entertain the possibility that maybe I was having something to do with this unfolding, I started to at first pretend, well, let's pretend as if things will work out. Let's just assume it a whole different way. Let's see what happens if I assume that people might like me. A strange assumption at that time. Or let's assume that maybe things will work out in in my uh, in my projects and it was amazing this confirmation I got this glimpse that perhaps my attitude had something to do with it and sure enough it had a tremendous amount to do with it and I started to get a lot of faith in the possibility and now these days I guess I'd be considered sometimes a cockeyed optimist but uh, but I have to feel that possibility of the good possibility opening up rather than assuming the worst. So I know it's possible. <clears throat> Let's take a look at the ways that we create suffering for ourselves. Generally, they come down to believing our thoughts, identifying with our thoughts, the ones that are coming out of 
greed, hatred, and delusion, the big three. Because those are the ones that we push away and keep a, have a lot of energy into keeping at bay. And so that just feeds them, gives them a lot of life. And when we believe in them, we seem to create that possibility. Believing in our, our thoughts, one area that we seem to get caught up in is our ideas of what's going to happen, expectations. You come to the meditation and you sit down and you hope that you'll have a good retreat. The kiss of death. <laughs> My life has been going so well. This is really the time to just smooth out and cruise on mindful cruise control. And you get surprised and then disappointed. Sometimes it works the other way, much to our delight. I've really been going through a lot of stuff. This is going to be the hell realms. And then you sit down and nowhere to be found. You never know what's going to happen. But we so often impose our own expectations on reality that when it doesn't match up to our hoped-for standards, there's a great disappointment and confusion and a feeling of, what did I do wrong? I remember... Uh, one retreat after being continually surprised so so regularly through the retreat that I I wrote a little note as a reminder to myself if you think nothing's happening watch out and then underneath if you think it's really happening now watch out just as a reminder because what's happening is going to be changing and so we keep on getting caught and caught and caught into thinking oh this is the way it's going to be so expectations that's one way we add on something to reality our ideas that we hold about ourself and our capabilities our self image which is often a negative one we seem to identify so much more easily with the garbage in our minds than, than the beauty in it. Oh, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do this, or I'm unworthy, or I get angry. And How do you hold yourself as you enter a retreat? What's your level of confidence? I came across a, a beautiful... Um, essay on breaking habits, breaking unskillful habits. This person was saying that when you're in the middle of an unskillful habit, it seems so impossible to, uh, to change, and that often there needs to be a kind of accumulated disgust till you finally reach your limit, what's what you call the, the moment of truth, where you decide to do things a different way. And after getting a plan, a strategy, if you can start to have a few successes with a situation that you used to have failures in, little by little, just one encounter at a time, you start to develop a different self-image around your whole being. Instead of somebody who always blows it, oh, I'm somebody who used to blow it and now has some success. 
he also suggested having some kind of a contingency plan if you relapse and <coughs> some support around. But that change of image of who we are starts to free up lots of possibilities. So that's another way that we create problems for ourselves, this self-image that we bring to the meditation for the rest of our lives, the expectations that we bring, the fears and worries that we bring, not just expectations and, and hopes. This pain won't go away. I'll always be at the mercy of my past habits. We use that to project into the future. <clears throat> There's also subtle images that, that we carry around that we don't realize, just different concepts as we approach the, re- the retreat even. For instance, somebody coming into an interview and saying you know, they're, they're really slogging through this retreat. That's a very heavy image to carry around. Yeah, I'm making it through. Here it is the, is this the ninth day or so. I'm slogging through. Another six to go. <laughs> and unless you can see that, you, you don't realize how that is subtly recreating your, your reality. Remember um, a retreat in the past, somebody coming through saying, you know, I just feel like I'm, I'm a ship out at sea lost at sea, swaying back and forth. And it gets kind of scary. There might be another way to hold that image. We we talked about maybe having an anchor on your ship and dropping it down. So all of these confusions lead to false perceptions about what's actually happening. Having a child, you can see how the mind so easily creates out of its fears. You you remember as a kid feeling there were monsters in your closet and monsters in your room? Well, we create those monsters even when we're grown up. They're not in the closet, they're just inside. So, given that we can create a lot of suffering through our confusion, how can we possibly create a reality of happiness? First, especially in terms of the meditation process, is realizing the emptiness of our thoughts. You don't invite those thoughts in. You don't say, oh, I think I'll have some fear now to work with. Or maybe a little doubt that'll be good for me. It just comes. And we don't have much say over what comes through the screen. But what we can learn from just our looking carefully, understanding the emptiness of the thoughts, is that we don't have to take responsibility for them. We're not responsible (coughs) for all of those things that come through. That when we can give a little bit of space around them to let them come and go on their own, then we can let the ones go by that we don't feel serve us and empower the ones that do. I sometimes think that that's one of the the most powerful gifts of this practice as we 
sit here and then go back into the world after practicing for 10 days or two, two and a half weeks, not reacting to each thought that comes through, it just gives a little bit more space around the thoughts. And then as we get back into the world, that little bit of space, that pause that makes us reflect when we're in the middle of something that's, that's quite confusing, it allows us to listen to where this message is coming from. Is this coming from old tapes of grasping or of fear or of um, rage? Or is the, the message coming from a deeper place of understanding? And if you listen for just a moment, you can hear the tone that the messages come in. If there's a, an edge to it, a harshness, a judgment, a grasping, a kind of confused energy that's very different from the tone that's a more connected place. Yes, this feels right. This doesn't feel right. This will support me in my, my growth. So that's the first thing, realizing the empty nature of all of these thoughts that come through. A second important element in creating happiness for ourselves has to do with a kind of vision that we have, what, we, what it is we want to create. We spoke about this a little bit the other evening. Right aspiration, some kind of direction for our practice. Clear comprehension of purpose one aspect of mindfulness where everything that you do is in the service of awakening if you get in touch with that being your purpose. And an important element of this vision is the intention that we bring to our practice, the intentions that arise in the mind. In every moment there's intention. Every moment intention to lift your hand, intention to, uh, to get up from the sitting. There's also more obvious intentions, what it is that we're trying to do in a particular activity. And sometimes we don't realize that we get caught in old patterns that keep intentions going that don't serve us. One retreat a number of years ago, I, I was sitting this retreat in Yucca Valley, and uh, it was during the Lomi uh, Vipassana retreats where there's a, a movement session each, each day. The end of the, the movement session, um, somebody came up to the instructor and I was uh, taking my time and leaving and I was overhearing this conversation. A few of us were around. This, this person was having a real problem with some physical discomfort and uh, physical aspect of, of her body. And she was saying, you know, give me some tips to improve this, uh, this area. And the instructor thought for a moment. He said, well, you can try um, this exercise. It's very helpful in strengthening the, the muscle. She said, oh, no, no, I couldn't do that because uh, then this would go out of whack. I just know I'd start to hurt my, my back over here. And he said, well, you can 
then maybe do this one. It's it's a slight variation, and it wouldn't affect those those muscles. You said, oh no no, I couldn't do that because you know, I I know that that would be very painful. And he gave her like three or four different options, and each one she deftly parried. And then he paused and he said, you know, I think your intention to stay the same is greater than your intention to change. And it was a very powerful moment. She just stopped in her, in her tracks and the people around felt the, the depth of what he was saying because it was, it was clear it was right on. And it's been important to reflect on that statement. It stayed with me for many years. If our intention to stay the same is greater than our intention to, sa- to change, we will stay the same. And that's okay, as long as we realize that that's what our intention is. If we get real clear that there is another way that we're going to put all our effort into, then there's a possibility of change. And it's really calling forth, evoking a whole new way of seeing things. Um, when Michelangelo completed uh, David, the statue of David, somebody came up to him and was lavishing praise on him. Oh, this is so incredible, you know, how, how you can create such a beautiful masterpiece. And Michelangelo said, you know, it wasn't all that, that great. Uh, you know, stop giving me all this praise. That the statue was in that stone all the time. It just needed a little help getting out. And in a way, that's what our task is, to see the possibility and call it forth, call it out. Neem Karoli Baba, who's one of my main Dharma inspirations, Maharaji from Ram Dass's books, had a a wonderful instruction. He would say, just keep on tuning into the good in people. Even when you see all the garbage around, just keep on tuning into the good and that's what you will call forth. It's true. When somebody sees our beauty, then it allows a space for that to come through. If we're around somebody who just sees how terrible we are, we can feel that too and that seems to be called forth. And so it's a very um, valuable way to practice calling forth the good, not only in, in others, but in ourself. Keep on seeing that, that Buddha inside of you. So our intention, our, our vision, our purpose. <clears throat> and that can be fueled by a sense of faith and the possibility his faith allows us to sustain that vision. Faith is a very important element of practice. Faith is something greater than hope. When we think of hope, oh, well, maybe this will happen. That's not what faith is. Faith is not hope. It's something that Seneca, the Roman philosopher, said, you cease to be afraid when you cease to hope. For hope is always accompanied by fear. If you hope that something will happen, it's a very different level than having a faith and trust that the universe is working in its own way if I do my part. 
And if we can keep this faith, if we can keep holding the vision, then and we put our intention into it, it gets created, maybe not on our timetable, but sooner or later, things start developing in that direction. And it's very important for us, not only on a personal level, but on a global level as well. Now, these are times of, of deep um, despair or confusion or fear as to what's coming in the years ahead because we're at a real crossroads. And it's essential that we be able to call forth and hold a vision that inspires, inspires us and inspires others because if we don't, then there's no point in continuing. You can't evoke that greater possibility. Came across a, uh, a beautiful interview with John Seed, who's a, a very inspiring and uh, active environmentalist. This is an interview that Ramdas um, had with John Seed. He says, In the end, nothing but a miracle would be of any use at this time. When you look at the rate of destruction, whether it's of the rainforest or the ozone layer, the climate, all of these things that are happening, and if you were to multiply all of the efforts of conservationists by a factor of 10 or even 100, it probably wouldn't be enough. So there's nothing in the horizon that can help us, you know. And so then you think, well, what kind of miracle would be needed? Well, it would be a very simple one, really. All that it would need would be for human beings to wake up one day different than they were the day before and realize that this is the end unless we make these changes and then decide to make the change. That doesn't seem like a very likely thing to happen, but on the other hand, the whole road that we've traveled is so littered with miracles that it's only our strange kind of modern psyche that refuses to see it. I mean, the miracle of being descended from a fish that chose to leave the water and walk on the land, well, anyone with a pedigree like that, you can't lose hope. <laughs> and to see him talk, he's an incredibly um, inspirational and upbeat figure who knows all the, the facts of gloom and doom. But having some sense of faith you do your part and you act not because you're trying to save the world but because it's your dharma to act. Not acting out of fear or desperation but just because it serves you to act. It's your practice to act that way. The quality of faith, it's a sense of deep trust in the process. Faith is one of the five faculties, five spiritual faculties that fuels our practice. Faith or trust in the meditation, in, in the process, in the teachings, leads to putting out the energy to effect some kind of uh, awakening. The energy to be mindful leads to a deepening of mindfulness. Mindfulness, as it's strengthened, leads to concentration. Concentration leads to wisdom. And so faith is what fuels it all. And if there weren't any possibility of change, why would you come here to a retreat and be mindful? If, the, if it was hopeless to begin with, 
It's not happening in random order, though. There is a cause and effect relationship to, to life, to the universe. And so as, you, as your faith develops and you see for yourself the possibilities of change, it leads to a, a confidence. Something else that, that seems important, a way that we can create happiness in our life as we go through this process and through our lives, is to play a bit with reality. To act as if, like I mentioned before when I was in my early 20s, to, to just pretend if you can't do it any other way. Just pretend in the possibilities. Pretend you're the Buddha. And it's interesting, once you give that, that possibility some energy, the Buddha seems to be called forth. Because you've got the Buddha, you've got Kuan Yin, you've got Hitler, you've got everything in, in there. And so, if you can act as if you are enlightened, see what happens. <coughs> There's a, one of my favorite books um, from Hermann Hesse, Steppenwolf. In the end of, towards the end of Steppenwolf, um, the, uh, the character Harry goes into this magic theater, magic theater for madmen only. And he goes into this place where there's loads of doors. And every time he enters the door into a new room, there's a whole different universe in there. One door, it's a jungle. He's on a safari and he's fighting tigers and uh, it's, it gets very exciting and kind of scary. And then he closes the door, okay, out into another door. And in another door, he's in high society and just really uh, having a blast. And it goes into another door. There's so many different realities we can create. And so we can play with it and start to evoke that energy seems important also as we create our reality or have this illusion of creating our reality that we hold what's happening in a very light way because that creates the space so that our, we're not contracting to our current situation and feeding it, that we can remember another perspective. We can remember that things are impermanent, that this changes. Christmas Humphreys, this... Uh, writer on Buddhism said the one miracle that this path has to offer is a change of heart if we can hold things lightly and have another possible attitude towards our, our current experience it's not so dense Sylvia has a beautiful way of saying it just seeing a, a break in the clouds you know when things are very dark and it doesn't seem like there's any way out just a little shaft of sunlight a little break in the clouds that allows for a perspective on things, just remembering that other perspective. You're not getting gold stars for how much dukkha you can survive. <laughs> and so you can choose to, to either do your dharma, do your retreat, do your life, be your, be your process from a, a heavy kind of <clears throat> slogging it through or, ha, huh, okay, let's dance through this one as best we can. But that means not being attached to the timetable or the agenda that you have. 
So, transforming suffering into happiness, creating another possibility. Mindfulness, obviously, is the key. The awareness, seeing the emptiness of the thoughts. When we see greed and hatred and delusion with mindfulness, then it changes into wisdom and acceptance. And in that moment, it changes from into non-greed, non-grasping, non-hatred, even of the pain, non-delusion, seeing it clearly. There's a, a beautiful uh, picture of the Buddha, I think it's in some Tibetan uh, paintings, as Mara is attacking him, the arrows of, of all the, the demons that, that are trying to confuse the Buddha as he's enlightened, as he's his moment of enlightenment. And then, after he's become enlightened, holding up his hand as the arrows come and to attack him, and the arrows changing into flowers. Because with that wisdom and that mindfulness, we change the demons of our mind into, into wisdom and into beauty. Now, as I, as I say this, there's also the element of um, taking a lot of responsibility for our reality. And, you know, especially in the Christian, uh, Christian tradition, the saying, not my will, but thy will be done. And it doesn't have to be a conflict here. Because as you listen to your dharma, as you listen to how you can best express truth and understanding and compassion, then you become a pure instrument for the Dharma and for love and for wisdom. And so it's not you against the universe, you against God or the Dharma. You just are the vehicle for it to be acted through. So since we're creating reality all the time, either through our fears and confusions or through our wisdom, we might as well choose which one. And a magical thing happens when we start to choose in a way that acts in harmony with, with life. So I end with this, this quote from the Scottish Himalayan Expedition. Until one is committed, there's hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always in effectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative in creation, there's one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That is that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of an unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance which no person could have dreamt would have come their way. I've learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets, whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it.
So let's sit for a few moments. Or to a fiery ending in a big crunch may be replaced with the universe evolving from a past without beginning to an unlimited future. That's a nice place to sit for a minute, isn't it? Let's just sit for a minute. I think about dedicating the merit from our own practice and study to the well-being of all beings. You think about all the human beings on this planet, near and far, all over this big rock in space. We are bound together by the common urge of human beings All beings want to be free of suffering. All beings want to be happy. There's a way, even when we watch people doing things that are seem unskillful and painful, there's a way even of understanding that in the sense that we do all kinds of things because they think they'll make us happy. Sometimes in ignorance we do things that create pain. But really we are bound together by that same wish of the heart to be happy. The traditional words to say are may all beings be free from danger. May all beings have mental happiness. May all beings have physical happiness. May all beings know ease of well-being. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy.
It's come to a point in the cycle of talks for this retreat after teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Three Characteristics and teachings of effort and not effort and loving kindness and vipassana and how they fit together. Many other things. Really wanting to speak to the place of our, begin to speak to the place of our practice both here as we sit together and in relationship to the world around us. Not so much as how we leave the retreat. There are still some days yet ahead for that. But sensing ourselves in the context of the world around. In the years that I practiced first in Asia and was ordained and walked as a monk in the mornings to collect alms food. One of the most compelling memories and experiences was the period in which I walked from a rather remote mountain monastery along the border of Laos that was one of Ajahn Chah's branch temples into some villages for food that were very poor villages. People lived simply there in the ways that very simple and poor villagers live almost anywhere. And the cycle of seasons was the cycle of their food. The end of the rice harvest, there would be a lot of food. And as it got into the dry season before the next rains came, They'd be running out of rice and there wasn't so much game around and food would become the major preoccupation of people to get enough food to eat. They made curries and various kinds of dishes out of just about everything that was alive that they could capture. There were snail curries and grasshopper curries and bat curries and because they needed to eat. And yet, walking through the villages, even in the dry season, in the poor times, people would be out there with their hands put together in kind of a prayer gesture, waiting and offer to the monks, including myself as the only Westerner then, um, some of their food. And it was really a kingly or royal or queenly giving. And I used to think about what right do I have to take food from people who are so poor, even though I don't particularly have much money and my family doesn't have money, if I needed it, if I were in some emergency, I could always wire home or wire to some friend and get them to send me $500 or $1,000 for some emergency. Whereas that would be the money of several years' labor in that village. And there's no way you can thank them when they put food in the bowl. You just accept it silently, do a loving kindness perhaps in in your own heart. The only way you can really respond and thank the people who offer that food 
is with the sincerity of your own practice. They offer it saying, we so value what you stand for that we'll give even of the little that we have to support that in our culture and in our life and in our village. And so it was as much food for the spirit as it was for the body. Coming back to this culture this year after traveling in Thailand and Bali for a number of months, it's really apparent, most of you I know have the same experience when you go away, how speedy and complicated our culture is, the Western variety, and how full of contradictions, how split in many ways. And it gets intensified when one sits to meditate. So during this retreat, at times people will face deep fear and deal with addictions and the results of past suicide and memories of uh, traumatic events of death, of war. And on the other side, there'll be tremendous joy that comes and great spaciousness and very deep compassion, a sense of sacredness sometimes in the same person, not many days apart. Outwardly, we get flooded by these different energies, the beneficial ones, as James spoke of last night, all kinds of possibilities of transforming the world, the end of the nuclear arms race, the democracies that may grow around the, around the earth the possibilities of new energy technologies. But always it's contradictory. Here we are sitting doing a practice that comes from South and Southeast Asia, Thailand, Burma, India, Sri Lanka. And in most of those countries, Laos and Cambodia, um, what is left of Buddhism and the population of those countries, there's tremendous suffering and struggle. We're doing this mental noting, which is part of the practice from Mahasi Saida in Burma. And the Burmese people, meanwhile, here we are doing this in this pleasant monastery. Um, the Burmese people are suffering immensely from uh, a military dictatorship that's selling off all their forests and natural resources to buy more weapons, that's imprisoning and killing many people, students, intellectuals, monks, anyone who speaks out. Or we drive here in our cars and fly here in planes, as I said the other night, and we're concerned about the rainforests or the ozone or whatever, but still the very actions that we do cause harm to them. So where does the problem lie? Remember this scene from Richard Heckler's book? I've read it in some other retreats. He's uh, a friend and teacher of Aikido and meditation and so forth who's instructing this book called The Warrior Spirit, Search of the Warrior Spirit, who's instructing the 
U.S. Army Special Forces in Green Beret and meditation and Aikido and so forth. And he and a couple of other friends had them do a one-month retreat in the woods in Massachusetts, which they said, the men said, and these are some of the toughest and best trained of American soldiers anywhere. They said it was about the hardest thing they'd ever done. Jumping out of low-flying airplanes in the dark at night with a heavy pack and kind of going through swamps was one thing, being shot at by snipers. But sitting a month of retreat (laughs) was something else. After 20 minutes of sitting, here they are, they come in their combat fatigues and put their rifles down next to them, right? For a month. I open my eyes and look over the seated figures in the room, charged with with quiet intensity. The person toward my right seems especially motionless, alive with presence. His breath moves rhythmically. My eye is caught by the black T-shirt that hugs his huge biceps and barrel chest and printed in bone white on the front is a large skull and crossbones, the words over it reading 82nd Airborne Edition, a Division, and the broad letters below the skull scream out, Death from Above. Something is wrong, I tell myself. <laughs> People don't wear t-shirts like this at meditation retreats. But the person inside the t-shirt looks like someone at a meditation retreat, another voice responds. I look back. The skull and crossbones glare menacingly back at me, 82nd Airborne Division, death from above. I have no mental file for what I see. Where's the war? Who's the warrior? Who's right and who's wrong? We have this tremendous abundance of food in our lives, splendid food here at the retreat, and yet we know there are many, many children who are hungry. We have this library, access to spiritual books, unlike anything the world has ever known. Just an amazing kind of plethora of great spiritual teachings. And then, we have the New York City Teacher of the Year receiving his award last year and castigating the mayor and the board of education and all the parents for the sole murder of one million black and Latino children. Think of the things that are killing our children, that which is killing us as a nation. Drugs, brainless competition, recreational sex, the pornography of violence, gambling, alcohol, and the worst pornography of all, Lives devoted to buying things, accumulation as a philosophy. All are addictions of dependent personalities, and this is what our brand of education is now inevitably producing. All the beautiful technology around us, the things that warm us and cool us, make our food, drive us places, light our lamps. And yet, what have we done with technology? Every gun that is made, every warship launched, this is Dwight Eisenhower, every rocket fired, 
signals in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and not clothed. This world in arms, one trillion dollars a year, is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. This is not a way of life at all in any true sense. Under the cloud of threatening war and the arms race, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. So the question is, inwardly and outwardly, how to face the contradictions of our life, how to respond. Outwardly, we've talked about it in the Four Noble Truths. The cause of suffering being greed, possessiveness, hatred, delusion. Racism, prejudice, all of those things. But then we sit and we see the roots of those in everybody's mind, including our own. Someone has to face these forces. Some human being has to face our humanness, and that's a part of it, and find a still place in the midst of them. When you face all of this stuff that I talk about, and it's there somehow, even if we don't think about it much, we know it. There can be concern, or caring, or confusion, or shame, or hopelessness, or sometimes it mobilizes us to want to act, all kinds of responses. How are we to respond? Well, there are these different kind of myths of how, these, these archetypes of how one responds. It can be a warrior, a spiritual warrior, of course, a good one in this case, right? Respond in an unshakable way. Or you can respond as a lover to love the world through your art, your music, your passion. Or respond through service. Or respond as a yogi, as someone who lives a contemplative life. When we look at how to face this contradictory life in which we live, there isn't a single simple answer. Each of us lives an unknown path. Collectively, we walk into the unknown. There's no imitation, no formula. Some people work and become wealthy, says Rumi. Others do the same and remain poor. Marriage fills one with energy, another it drains. Don't trust ways, they change. A technique or means flails about like a donkey's tail. Always add the gratitude clause to any sentence. If God wills, then act. If God wills. Some things work for one person, some for another. So what are we to do? in the face of this. What our spiritual practice suggests 
is something very simple and in a way quite radical. It is to take all the problems and all the conflicts and roll them together. To roll together all time. To roll together all concerns. To roll together the joys and sorrows that we've seen and imagined. And face them for all time where they actually are which is just here. This is the only time there is, this eternal present moment. One who does this is called a bodhisattva. Bodhisattva is a compound word. Bodhi means awakened and sattva is being. A bodhisattva is a being committed to awakening. Even if the sun should arise in the west, says Suzuki Roshi, the bodhisattva has only one way. Even if the world is turned upside down, even if the contradictions that are here become so strong that all the things we know and have experienced are changed on us. The way of the bodhisattva is to be there for the next moment, the next day, the next experience, and to use that to awaken compassion and freedom. Traditionally, the vows of a bodhisattva, which are taken often in Zen practice and Tibetan practice, you begin with these vows, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. It's sort of the first statement in your meditation. It's not like I'm going to try and find my breath and let my body (laughs) settle down and then, you know, become a little bit kinder. But there is a number, there are numberless sentient beings in the tens of hundreds of billions of quadrillions of atoms of world systems. And I'm going to save every one of them. That's my first statement in practice. <laughs> Difficulties and hindrances are endless. I vow to overcome them all. <laughs> You've probably been working with that practice here, right? Dharmas are inexhaustible. I vow to master them all. And the Buddha's way is unattainable. I vow to attain it. (laughs) So you start with this as kind of your premise and practice. Now if you think about it in time, here you've been sitting for 10 or 11 days. You know, how far have you gotten in that? (laughs) In terms of all the numberless sentient beings of the world and the inexhaustible dharmas the uh, endless difficulties. If you think about it in time, even a hundred thousand mahakalpas of the bird with the silk scarf wearing away the mountain for a mahakalpa isn't enough time to do very much. Because it doesn't take place in time. To understand how to solve the dilemma of these contradictions and in a way how to solve the dilemma of our humanity is to step outside of time and to discover that which we seek to fulfill that is here moment by moment by moment. What that means is that for a bodhisattva, for this awakening, it isn't to attain anything at all. If you're trying to attain something in a hundred thousand million mahakalpas, you'll be constantly measuring. 
and constantly overwhelmed. It's simply a direction. The Bodhisattva's life is to turn one's heart in a direction of truth and compassion and walk. Enlightenment, then, is an activity rather than a state. Again, Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said a really amazing thing. He said, strictly speaking, there is no such thing as an enlightened person. There is only enlightened activity. The idea of an enlightened person is a um, oxymoron just like Western civilization or (laughs) other such things. Strictly speaking, there is no such thing as an enlightened person. As long as the person is there doing this or that, that's not what enlightenment is about. It's nothing that one can attain or possess. There is only enlightened activity. To understand this is to sense that our practice is that which makes every activity sacred. Every act is the act of a bodhisattva. Every act is the act of mercy or the act of that which is beautiful. This is from Thomas Merton. Whatever your work is, his work was to be a writer. He said, if you write for God, you will reach many men and women and bring them joy. If you write for others, you may make some money and you may give someone a little joy and you may make a noise in the world for a little while. If you write for yourself, you can barely read what you yourself have written (laughs) and after ten minutes you will be so disgusted you will not wish oh you will wish that you were dead <laughs> way of putting things very directly to make activity sacred if you write for god everything else is pleased in the bargain if you're not a writer suppose it's your family family life an old Hasidic tale if you never want to see the face of hell when you come home from work every night dance with your kitchen towel and if you're worried about waking up your family take off your shoes first (laughs) to make what one does sacred that is in part why we so much ask for continuity here because it's the continuity of your presence that allows for a deeper vision, a deeper sense of that which is sacred or whole to shine in you. When you go away, it takes a while to come back and be here. It's the very continuity of breathing and sensing the body, noticing as you move, that brings you deeper and deeper into that presence. Now, as I've said, there are no models Or maybe you could say there are thousands of models of how to do this, of how to live in the direction of a bodhisattva, of to make everything sacred. 
because you're not going to be like Mother Teresa and go off to Calcutta, most of you. That's not your way. But fortunately, there are so many ways. There's the way of the Buddha and the monks and nuns that followed him as renunciates. And there's the way of Goenka and Ubakin, his teacher in the Vipassana tradition. Goenka as a millionaire businessman who also spent his life teaching Dharma. Or Ubakin, who was the one of the cabinet ministers in the founding of the Burmese government. And in the Evening, afternoons and evenings, he would go back to the little meditation center he founded and teach meditation to people and then go back in his office. He was the secretary of the treasury or head of the Department of Commerce. And then he became also appointed head of the Department of Internal Revenue for Burma. And he asked people when they came in to do an hour of sitting in the morning in the office before they did the taxes and the commerce. Can you imagine that? And then to take the five precepts every morning. Can you imagine that in our government? The IRS sitting for an hour and then taking the precepts. And he did it so successfully that then he was given the Ministry of Transportation. And by the time he retired, he was holding four portfolios, the minister of four departments during the daytime and then going back home and teaching people um, at his meditation center running this meditation center for a lot of students on his off hours. So that's a different model. There's Rosa Parks, you know that nice book that's been opened out in the library of those wonderful black women out on the table. And Rosa Parks was really simple. She just didn't get off the bus. They said to her, you have to move or you have to leave or you have to move your seat. And the only thing Rosa Parks did is she said, I'm not going to get off the bus. And that simple act started this whole movement and transformation. There's a person in this community, in the Vipassana community, who works uh, as a psychologist for a large corporation and organization um, that helps people to diet in this country. And what she did at one point, she saw all these people trying to lose weight and diet and struggling with it in tremendous pain. And at the same time, her contra- the contradiction was that she saw homeless people and hungry people. And so she started a project several years ago that's growing now nationwide called Dieters Feed the Hungry for, for Weight Watchers International, for the, the biggest dieting concern in America, in which the people who are giving up eating, instead of giving it up just for themselves, offer the amount of food that they wouldn't eat to people who are hungry. And they collect food in all these different cities. And it's really taken off. It's remarkable because it's really different to diet just for yourself and to do it as an act of a bodhisattva for yourself and all beings. There's so many different ways the bodhisattva spirit can come through us. Ryokan never preached or reprimanded anyone 
Once his brother asked Ryokan to visit his house and speak to his delinquent teenage son. This was several centuries ago in Japan, but things haven't changed much. Ryokan came, but didn't say a word of admonition to the boy. He simply stayed there. And when he prepared to leave, the wayward nephew came to lace up Ryokan's sandals and felt a warm drop of water. Glancing up, he saw Ryokan looking down at him, his eyes full of tears. Ryokan then returned home, and the nephew changed very much for the better. Sometimes it's yogis in caves who spend their life just sitting there doing compassion and loving-kindness meditation for all beings in the world. And sometimes it's Dorothy Day in the streets of New York. We each have to listen to our own way and our own gift. We each have gifts. And to follow those gifts with our heart. I think that's what Joseph Campbell really meant by follow your bliss. It's kind of gotten cheapened like, you know, follow your desires. And that can get pretty confusing, can't it? Since the one desire is not many moments later followed by a contradictory one. But I think what Joseph Campbell meant, I know it really, having heard him speak many times and taught with him in certain occasions, really listening, that following your bliss meant to follow this gift of your heart and fulfill it. My favorite bodhisattva in the Buddhist scriptures, or one of my favorites, is Vimlakirti, who decides to show people very clearly that the way to manifest awakening, to bring awakening to all beings, does not require some holy or sacred form. So Vimlakirti takes leave of the monasteries and all of the councils of great you know, enlightened beings. And he goes and he gets married, which is brave of him. And then he has a huge family with lots of children to show how to be enlightened in the midst of a large family. And then he makes himself sick at some point and goes to the hospital in order to teach all the people who work in the hospital so that he can teach Dharma. At some other point he goes and tends bar, basically, to teach the people who come there the holy Dharma. And Vimlakirti kind of gets himself into every possible difficult circumstance and says, oh, this is the most fun for a bodhisattva. This is, of course, his own particular gift in his own particular way. What fulfilling this enlightenment as an activity asks of us is the capacity to face and see honestly just what is here in front of us. And that's really what we've been doing a lot of these days together seeing, facing, opening our hearts to what's here. I take inspiration from the Vietnam Veterans Memorial where finally people face what happened there and walk down that long wall and touch the 58,000 names carved into it and weep. 
I come down here to visit friends of mine sometimes. They are on panel 24, lines 56 and 58. Go down and visit them sometime. I think you will like them. All the notes and all of the messages that are left for people there and all the tears as people really let themselves finally look. I lost two boyfriends and all I did was drink and take drugs for years and years and I still don't understand why you all died. It was too much for me. Now I'm better and I work with veterans and I don't know what else to say. I know you're in heaven and you're not lonely that there are 58,600 friends to share with you. That's part of why we sit. We sit to learn how to open and face whatever is true in front of us. The beautiful things and the painful things. And they teach us. So Horton kept sitting there day after day. And soon it was autumn, the leaves blew away. And then came the winter, the snow and the sleet. And icicles hung from his trunk and his feet. But Horton kept sitting and said with a sneeze, I'll stay on this egg, I won't let it freeze. I meant what I said and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful, 100%. <laughs> T.S. Eliot's line, Blessed Sister, Mother Mary, Spirit of the Fountain, Spirit of the Garden, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still even among these rocks. Teach us to care and not to care. So we sit to learn to care and to learn not to care. And to face the forces that bring suffering to sentient beings. The greed, the hatred, the forces that allow one being to kill another. And to discover something unshakable in us moment after moment that is greater than those forces. If you want to see the brave, says the Bhagavad Gita, look for those who can forgive. If you want to see the heroic, Look for those who can love in return for hatred. Gandhi, when he wakes up in the morning, says this. Let my first act every morning be this resolve. I shall not fear anyone on earth. I shall fear only God. I shall not bear ill will toward anyone. I shall not submit to injustice from anyone. I shall conquer untruth by truth, and in resisting untruth, I shall withstand all suffering and bring freedom to the world. Now one has to be very careful in speaking about bodhisattva, that somehow you don't set up a new ideal. All right, I'll be like Gandhi or Dorothy Day or... 
you know, Rosa Parks or whoever inspires you. I'll be fearless. And it doesn't really mean that. I'm sure Gandhi was afraid. And I remember going to Calcutta and visiting Mother Teresa one of a number of times. But this time with, with uh, Wes Nisker, and we were going to work on this show for National Public Radio on spirituality and social responsibility. I brought this letter and a lot of money from this big church to deliver it to Mother Teresa and a letter from people she knew. And we went really early in the morning at 4.30 when the nuns get up and they do all their prayers. And then at 5 or 5.15 she was coming out, knew that we'd find her. Stopped her, Mother, can we speak to you? Here's a letter and here's some offering from some friends of yours. Can we speak with you? Yes, she sat down. Took out the tape recorder and turned it on. And then I took out this, the lights and a video camera as well and turned these lights on. And she looked up and she was kind of annoyed. And she said, oh, are you going to film it too? Um, and I thought to myself, Jesus. <laughs> Here I've come to Calcutta and I've gotten Mother Teresa pissed off. <laughs> And then I watched her, you know, and there was just a moment where she was annoyed and she said, okay. She kind of shifted. She was annoyed for a moment and she shifted and she said, okay. She said, what can I do for you? And it was a very um, instructive moment. So it's not that you want this ideal, I'm always going to be this way or that we're supposed to be that. What transforms the world is our humanity, is our ability to sit with the whole of ourselves and bring the whole of ourselves moment to moment to this life. St. Vincent de Paul, you know all those St. Vincent de Paul societies and <laughs> where they collect your unwanted things <laughs> and feed at the soup kitchen in San Rafael, hundreds of people every day. St. Vincent de Paul said, it is only by feeling your love that the poor will forgive your gifts of bread. That it's not really the bread that serves. So the greatest gifts of the Bodhisattva are the simplest things our presence, humanity, honesty. That's where our compassion is. From Emerson, he speaks of this beautifully. To laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people, and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest criticism and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty and find the best in others, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived,
This is what it means to have succeeded in your life. The simplest things, a garden patch, a healthy child, putting on Mozart in the middle of the war, driving more peacefully, not getting off the bus. And to sit is to let ourselves touch that true nature, that which we long for, that bliss to be followed. And this is our gift. Here we sit, and anyone who has sat at Santa Sabina develops this marvelous relationship to the courtyard and the garden out there. Most of the time in the courtyard and the cloister of past years, there have been this beautiful array of flowers, Sister Susanna and Francisco and the others who work on it. And this time, like our own retreat, the garden is in process, moving stones, replanting roses. But the garden is the center of this place. And there's a garden in each of us that is the center that we can discover that we can rest in in the present moment the eternal present and to touch that allows us to be a bodhisattva moment after moment so I end with a poem about gardens by a woman named Lynn Parks who grew up with, I don't know if it was cerebral palsy, something like that, and was told she would be unable to walk, but wanted to walk anyway, without crutches, and walked, and fell, and broke her legs, and got them set, and walked again. I think she broke her legs 17 times in the course of her childhood, trying to learn to walk anyway. This is her poem. Take the time to pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden so the doorway can swing open easily. You can always go there. Consider yourself blessed. These stones that break your bones will build the altar of your love. Your home is the garden. Carry its odor hidden in you into the city. Suddenly, your enemies will buy seed packets and fall to their knees and plant flowers in the dirt by the road. They'll call you friend and honor your passing among them. When asked, who was that, they will say, Oh, that one has been beloved by us since before time began. This from the people who would have trampled over you to maintain their advantage. Give everything away except your garden, your worry, your fear, your small-mindedness. Your garden can never be taken from you. Treasure the rest of the time that you are here. 
sit long sittings if you can. Do long walkings. Keep yourself slow as we start to move through this week and it's now been 11 or 12 days. It's, what is today? Wednesday? Thoughts about the weekend coming up arise. This is a really precious place and time. And those voices and thoughts, they'll have their time too. The things about leaving. But stay with it. Let it deepen further. Honor this place and honor your garden. Let's sit for a minute. It is here in your sitting and eating and walking that you can rediscover, awaken that presence that will take you from moment to moment to moment in your life. Let me read that poem, that last poem once more, just because I like it a lot. Take the time to pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden so the doorway can swing open easily. You can always go there. Consider yourself blessed. These stones that break your bones will build the altar of your love. Your home is the garden. Carry its odor hidden in you into the city. Suddenly your enemies will buy seed packets and fall to their knees to plant flowers in the dirt by the road. They'll call you friend and honor your passing among them. 